Daniel, this is it. This is the time of year. This is, they call it list season. That's the official name of this time of year. It just seems like after Christmas, the lists begin, and that's what it's all about. And I'm I'm addicted to them. Me too. I want to know what people are ranking, how they're ranking them, what I should be watching, reading, listening to. I mean, it makes sense, because people are are assessing, like, oh, like they want to rank what happened that year, you know, in terms of art and entertainment and sports, maybe. I'm not in that world. I don't know. I don't know. Do they do it with sports? Like, top... I, no, the I don't ranking think... system with sports is, is much more clear cut. I, I, think. I think at the end of the season, it's pretty clear who's at the top. Yeah, yeah. But when it does come, when it comes to art, it's an interesting thing, right? Yeah. Because I mean, how does one go about ranking all of these things, art and expression of, and what people are trying to say and how they're trying to say it? I mean, that's a that's a tough job. I feel comfortable looking at something and saying that's that that is a quality piece of art or that is really good, but saying that's the best. Then you're in such an odd space. Because who are you to say that? Who are you? (laughs) And for that matter, who are we? Right. I'm not above a clickbaity thing. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, we want people to click. And you have, and we thank you. You're here to find out what are the 10 greatest freshman films of all time as decided by the self-proclaimed experts of freshman films. I think it's safe to say this is what you've been waiting for. I want to give a disclaimer because, you know, we're, we're going to go, we're going to run down the line. And Daniel, I have thought a lot about my list. Me too. I I was a little bit anxious about making a list yeah. Be- because, I mean, you're, you're saying here are the films that are part of my list, which means you're saying here are the films that aren't part of my list yeah i know what you mean because there are there are films in my list that i just wanted to be on there so badly but they didn't make it i know probably important to point out that we've talked about this distinction in the past the difference between great films and films that are important to us now i don't want to speak for both of us but i can tell you the way i formulated my list what are films that are my favorites what are films that are important to me yep and i did the same thing what are films freshman films that i keep coming back to even the order of my list. They they tend to grow in order of importance to me rather than in terms of quality of the film. And so I, I want to say that going in because I don't want, I don't know, I guess I don't want anyone to think that we're trying to represent that these films are better. On the other hand, isn't that what every list is though? It is. I mean, it's a, it's, it's someone's preference. Needless to say that the, the list maker thinks way more about this than the list reader, but I've got my own list. Daniel, you have your own list. We don't know the items on each other's lists. We don't. We have no idea. I don't know what you chose. Well, you know what? We've uh, we've been running around in circles long enough talking about the thing instead of actually doing the thing, which is listing our movies, and uh, I say we get into it. Let's do it. Let's go. Choosing the, my number 10 pick was the hardest choice. Yep. I don't know if you felt similar. I did. I mean, I felt like there a lot of things could take its place. Yeah. There's all these movies that I feel like deserve a spot on the top 10, but number 10 is the cutoff. Everything else doesn't belong. Right. But I'll tell you the pick that I arrived at. Um, so Daniel, you'll probably recall during our election special, mm-hmm. my pick was The Ides of March, uh, which is a film I still love. And I made the comment, as strong a, an actor as George Clooney Mm -hmm. is. I feel like his true strength is actually behind the camera, and I still feel that way. And of course, that's why my number 10 choice is the 2002 George Clooney-directed film Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. That's a good pick for number 10. Thank you. I, You know, it's a polarizing pick. 
Why? Because people were split on that. Maybe you don't recall. I don't but remember. People that. were critics in particular seemed to be split down the middle. Uh, the complaints were, of course, it, it was over stylized. Right. It was top heavy with celebrities. You know, it seemed like every five minutes there was another cameo or someone else that you know was part of George Clooney's A list brood. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's fair. I, you know, I don't know. I loved every minute of Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I love the fact that it felt like the film of a young guy who knew a lot of celebrities or something, you know, but I loved the Charlie Kaufman script. I loved Sam Rockwell's performance. The as energy Chuck of that film. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was. I loved the fact that it was based on this bananas autobiography by Chuck Barris that's clearly bullshit, but is it? I know. I mean, how could it possibly be? And by the way, for those that haven't seen the film, it's based on the questionable autobiography of Chuck Barris, his book, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, where he tells the story of how when he was hosting the gong show and creating shows (laughs) like The Dating Game and creating pop songs, he was also an assassin for the CIA. So crazy. But the thing that I love about it too is like you know every so often we'll cut away to like documentary style interview footage of the actual people that were involved in chuck barris's life and we'll hear interview snippets it was a pretty risky film i think to make or at least for an actor wanting to become a director yeah it's a pretty outlandish story and a lot of style as you already mentioned i mean i appreciate that clooney just went for it with that with that film me too and by the way i was a kid who loved chuck barris you did. Now, I was. My dad has home movies of my four-year-old Chuck Barris impersonation. No way. Yeah, it's true. The fedora pulled down over my eyes, clapping my hands, saying, all right, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, we got a great show for you tonight with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. It felt like full circle, this thing. It was this just a grab bag of fun. This next, oh, oh, this is so good. I love this man. This next act answers the age-old question. If you wear a cellophane, if you... Okay, if you wear a cellophane suit, can people clearly see you're nuts? I don't know. A little humor, folks. All the way from Pacoima, Mick Donnelly! Like the guy's feet are too big for his bed. Nothing seems to fit those. Who could have known there were so many Americans just waiting for the opportunity to get on TV and make an ass out of themselves? That's amazing. Good film. Well, thank you. So, Daniel, what do you have for us for your number 10 pick? Number 10 pick. Okay, so here's the thing about about this film. Go ahead. I wanted to keep it off the list, but I had to be honest and say, no, I, I, lo- I like this film. It kept, it kept pulling you back. And it kept pulling me back. And the reason I wanted to keep it off is because of my recent experience with the filmmaker. Oh, wow. Here's my pick for number 10. It's the 1992 film directed by Quentin Tarantino. Reservoir Dogs. Daniel Long. This is I already we're getting into reveals that I did not see coming. Well, here's the thing. I had to be honest, like this movie is a freaking good film. It is. Like I said, I had another film up here in number 10, and then I'm thinking, I'm being dishonest. I like this film more. Mm-hmm. And the other film, I'll just, I'll just name it, was Heart 8. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And then I thought, you know what? You no. like the director more, clearly. 
I like the director more, and I thought if I'm honest, I like the film more. And I yeah. actually think P.T. Anderson would be okay with this. Yeah. Who hasn't seen Reservoir Dogs? But if you haven't, it's about a group of guys who they're trying to pull off this heist, and a lot of things go wrong, and there's a lot of chaos and a lot of revealing in this non-linear storytelling fashion, which is just it's a remarkable film. So it wasn't the first Tarantino film I saw. So I'm, I was aware of his style the non-linear storytelling. So that wasn't even the thing that grabbed me. The thing that grabbed me was the way that I felt like I was actually getting connected to these characters through that way of storytelling. I don't know if I felt that way about Pulp Fiction, which was the first Tarantino film I saw. I was connected to those characters, but there's something about the betrayal at the end, or I feel between Mr. Orange, right, and Mr. White. Sure, the sure. The Tim Roth character and the Harvey Keitel character. That caught me off guard. Like, I just felt so deeply for their partnership. And of course, like the music and, and just and the violence and the language. There's so many things about that film that I love that I go back to over and over and over again. So... It had to be there. And I'm glad it's on your list uh, because it's a film that I find myself sometimes almost trying to dismiss. As we were beginning the Freshman 15 podcast, that was one of our first conversations was, I don't think that we really have anything to say about Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Do we have anything new to say about it? You know? And I personally, I can't speak for both of us. I don't personally feel like I have anything new per se to say about it. And I think you're right about that Mr. White, Mr. Orange relationship. It's the core of the film Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Now, people will remember things like, oh, remember the like a virgin conversation in the diner. Remember the guy getting his ear sawed off. And you have all these iconic moments. None of that compares to the core relationship of a man who has empathy for another man who's bleeding to death in the backseat of his car. That's that's something incredible. It really is incredible. We ain't taking him to a hospital. We know he's going to die. And I'm very sad about that, but some fellas are lucky and some ain't. Keep touching me for man. You wanna fuck with me? I'll show you who you're fucking with. You wanna shoot me, you little piece of shit? Go ahead, take a shot. Fuck you, White. I didn't create this situation. I'm dealing with it. You're acting like a first year fucking thief. I'm acting like a professional. I didn't tell him my name. I didn't tell him where I was from. Shit, 15 minutes ago, you almost told me your name. Your buddy there is stuck in a situation you created. So if you wanna throw bad looks somewhere, throw them out of the mirror. You kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's going to start crying. So number nine. Number nine. All right. So I look through my list and I see themes, patterns, and I, you know, and I don't mean for them to be there, but I look and they're there nevertheless. Yep, I noticed those too. Uh, successful writers who decided to try their hand at directing. Directors who did a great first film and then didn't really do anything good after that. Mm-hmm. Films that introduced me to an actor or another type of artist or something like that, that there's no way in the world I ever would have been exposed to if not for this film. So all these different things I, I see again and again on my list. My number nine pick somehow is the nexus of all these different things. It's got all these elements yeah, in one wait. film, which is so interesting to me. Wait, can I guess? Sure. American Beauty. <laughs> My pick is the 2003 film from screenwriter Peter Hedges, who decided to direct. He did so with a low-budget picture that I am and will always be completely in love with, and that, of course, is Pieces of April. Wow. It's a film that, from the minute I saw it, I loved it. Now, really? You're laughing. I'm surprised. You're surprised. I'm surprised. It, it was kind of a write-off for a right. lot of people, and... 
maybe justifiably, but there was something inside this film that I just, I love so much. You know what? Never mind the fact that it has one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest film soundtracks ever, even though it's a very minimalist soundtrack. But the whole um, movie is scored by pop songs by Stephen Merritt, who's... I love Stephen Merritt. Stephen Merritt's fantastic. In fact, I'll say it right now, he's my favorite musician. Really? I didn't know that. And I'd never heard Stephen Merritt before Pieces of April. But the thing was so great. So Pieces of April tells the story of, uh, of a family on Thanksgiving Day... It's an estranged family, and they're traveling to see the daughter, who's sort of the black sheep of the family, and she's trying her best to get Thanksgiving dinner ready. For days, no, it's not true. no for days, Jim, I've been trying to think of nice April memories, and I can only come up with one. One vivid, beautiful memory. Okay, what was it? It's not important. Oh, like hell, it's not. Tell us. What was it? She had just turned three, and it was early in the morning, but it was already sunny. And she was just gazing out the window, and she she turned back to me, and she said, Oh, Mother, don't you just love every day? That was me. It was. April was six when we lived on Locust Street. Is that right? I'm sorry, but it's important that we're accurate here. These are my memories, too. Are you sure? No, she's absolutely right. God, freaking damn it. Nothing is going right. Through the course of the film, you come to find out that there's a lot on the line, uh, not the least of which is it's very, very likely that this meal is going to be the mother's final Thanksgiving. Hmm. Fantastic performances. Katie Holmes is the lead. She plays April. Uh, Oliver Platt is the father. Um, He's, I mean, I love that guy. Oh, he's so great. So good. Patricia Clarkson is the mother, Joy. Uh, the the sister, and the first time I had ever seen her, uh, Alison Pill, who's wonderful, wonderful, underrated actress who's in some of the greatest films ever. Uh, but top to bottom, this is such a solid film with such a beautiful emotional core to it. I'll always love it. It's it's a tradition, actually, in our house. We watch pieces of April every Thanksgiving, almost really? every Thanksgiving. We do. And uh, if you haven't seen it, see it. It's it's great. So here's the thing. I've only seen that film, I think, one time, and it was around when it came out. So I don't have many opinions on it. But I do remember the film forces you to focus on, maybe because of the way that it's shot or because it's low budget, these relationships In this time that's so fraught, right, with potential dysfunction or expectation, just such a good pick, so surprising. Well, thank you. I love it. I love the I love the rhythm of it. I love the fact that the climax, the moment that you've been waiting for for the whole movie, which is the which is the culmination, the 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 moment when the family at last sees each other and comes together, is done without sound. And in mm. fact, not just without sound, it's done without footage. Peter Hedges shows us a procession of photographs from that day. Peter Hedges understands that some moments are actually too big to be shown, and that's how he directs in, in pieces of April. Thank you for that pick. It actually makes me want to go back and watch the film. Well, thank you. I hope so. So, Daniel, you're number nine. My number nine is the 2000 film, the director David Gordon Green, George Washington. Mm. So George Washington, as soon as I saw those opening few minutes where you have the music and the narration and these sweeping shots that feel so beautiful, I knew I was seeing something I hadn't really seen before. Now, David Gordon Green was my introduction to Terrence Malick. 
Really? How so? I think it was maybe something I read about the film that compared the two filmmakers. Hmm. And so I'm like, oh, I like this. So I need to I need to watch some Terrence Malick films, which, I mean, he's another favorite filmmaker of sure. mine. So Is it possible that you're the only person in history that was introduced to Terrence Malick through David Gordon Green? Probably. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that, though. No, for sure. Here's the thing about George Washington. I'd never seen a film that actually felt like poetry before in the way that I was actually supposed to be watching it in the way that I, maybe I read poetry in that I'm not even necessarily sure what to make of all these things, all these, but somehow they're connected in perhaps a way into the meaning of what's going on is how I feel about it. If you haven't seen the film, the film is about a group of kids in the summer in North Carolina who really are brought together because of this tragedy that happens. I'm not going to give too much away. It's at the core of the film, and these kids really trying to figure out who they are in the midst of of this terrible tragedy. And I just felt undone by that film. I felt so, so deeply. And I can't even, I don't even think I was able to articulate. It was just like a feeling of, oh man, I just watched something profound for me. I just, I just want out of this. All my life, I can't, it's like I can't trust nobody, man. All my life, people have let me down. I, j- I just want to be by myself and just think about this. Think about what I'm going to do. Because I know I ain't staying around here. I just, I just wish I had my own tropical island. I wish I was... I wish I could go to China. I wish I could go out of space, man. I wish I had my own planet. I wish... I wish there were 200 of me, man. I wish I wish I could just, I don't, man, I wish I was born again. I wish I could get saved and give my life to Christ. Then maybe he'll forgive me for what I did. Man, I just wish there was one belief, my belief. Confession, this film, George Washington, has been on my must-get-to list for nearly a year now. And I've not seen it. I'm going to have to see this film. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you recommend I love this list so far. We're two entries in. I'm loving it. Me loving too. It. And David Gordon Green, what an interesting director. I know. Well, he you is... want to talk about, like, diversity of material. I mean, holy cow. He's, like, on the one hand, like, these powerful and sometimes political, sometimes these emotional right. films. And then he turns around and gets with, like, Danny McBride or someone and makes the most insane screwball. He directs television episodes that are just hilarious. He's bound and, and down. And he's right. He's bound and down. I mean, how can you go from George Washington to Eastbound and Down is unbelievable, or even to Pineapple Express? Like, right. That is crazy. It's to me. so odd. But the thing is, there is this quality to his films, and I mean quality in every sense of the word. It's just like you look at it and you're like, this is a quality product. Yep. Number eight. So number eight, Daniel, I'm not going to go into too much detail because uh, the fact of the matter is, um, I've already gone into exhaustive detail about this film. With you, because it's how we kicked off the podcast. And of course, my number eight film is 1984's Blood Simple by the Coen brothers. It can't not be on my list. I know. I, I can't not have it. Uh, I, I just, I, I love the film. If you haven't heard episode one, go back. The Coens from the get-go had such a fantastic handle on the types of stories they wanted to tell, the kind of dialogue they wanted to write. There are a few suspense movies that do what Blood Simple does as well as Blood Simple does it. Uh, it's It was the introduction of two of the greatest filmmakers the ever. greatest, yeah. I, I mean, honestly, the, most days I would call Joel and Ethan Cohen, my favorite directors. Uh, they're just, I've already said it all. I mean, you know, you need to see Blood Simple if you haven't. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. 
and go ahead, you know, complain, tell your problems to your neighbor, ask for help, and watch him fly. Now, in Russia, they got it mapped out so that everyone pulls for everyone else. That's the theory, anyway. But what I know about is Texas. And down here, you're on your own. Right, so you can't. You just have to figure out what number that will be on for my list. <laughs> right, because I, I agree. How can that not be yeah. on the list? It's 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 a must. Blood simple, more than worthy to be on any top ten list of certainly of freshman films. So my pick for number eight. Number I'm going to go ahead and say this is my most pretentious pick on the list. Let's hear it. But I could not put it on here. Mm-hmm. The four hundred blows. Mm. 1959, Francois Truffaut. Love it. I'm so happy. I'm so happy this made your list. It had to make the list, and I'm going to tell you why it had to make the list. This film was the introduction for me for the French New Wave Cinema, which is such a profound collection and way and style of filmmaking. It grabs hold of my heart. Mm. And maybe no film does that better than The 400 Blows. The 400 Blows is about this 12, 13-year-old named Antoine. It's really his kind of growing up as an adolescent in Paris. And, I mean, I so relate to this character. I mean, I didn't grow up in Paris or anything like that. But really, does it matter when you're 12 or 13 where you grow up? There are so many things about that time in life that are similar. I mean, here's a kid who's misunderstood, really makes foolish decisions as any 12 or 13-year-old would. There are consequences, and then those consequences, I feel like, kind of push him further and further into this way of being that he doesn't necessarily want to live into, but he has no other choice. I mean, it asks the question about, like, who's guiding him? Who's leading him? Where are his parents? Are they there emotionally? Where is his father physically and emotionally? The final shot. Antoine escaping like this facility, running toward the beach, realizing there's no way to go. And the film ends with Antoine looking directly into the camera and you have that that zoom in on his face. When I watched that, he was staring back at me. It's like It's almost like he was staring back at my 12, 13-year-old. Yeah. That's still in me in some way. Yeah. Asking the question, I think, how far is this story going to go for him? Where's it going to go? And what's it going to look like? And the black and white cinematography mm-hmm. and the camera work, I mean, it just had to be there. Had to be on my list. I, and, I'm, and I'm glad it is. I did not include a foreign film on my list, but if I had, there's a decent chance that 400 Blows would have... You'll never see a more human film. Oh my goodness. It's the so humanity cool. is palpable. It's such an interesting look at culture and Mm -hmm. childhood and there's just so many moments that you're like i just i don't know from a story point of view i don't always know i don't feel like i need to know it just there's something about it that's grabbing me though my experience with it was watching this kid and wondering how much he understands already about the world around him and how much he's just kind of accepting without understanding it yet you never quite know. You don't. You know, and that's and that's that's something that's so beautiful. Something else. You mentioned the French New Wave. Obviously, people that are more uh, film enthusiasts are mm-hmm. they're familiar with the, what that whole movement. But I think most people, you see so many films that are influenced by French New Wave, and you, and you'd never know. Oh, it. You'd never know. Yeah. Like so much camera work. So much. So many of the films that are on this list have yeah. been influenced by the French New Wave. There's so many shots, and there's so many styles, and there's so many ways to present a narrative. 
that started there. So I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled with that pick. Good, good. I don't know if most people are like this. I'm like this. There, there are periods that I go through in my life where I have a movie that I just sort of play on loop almost. Mm-hmm. They're just, this is what I have going on in the background right now, you know, and that's it. And it's not even necessarily like, oh, this, because this is the greatest film I've ever seen or anything like that. It's just like, no, this just fits my vibe right, right. now, you know? Right. That was the case with my number seven pick, the film from a director that wound up being uh, actually a big budget blockbuster director. But his first film was this silly, quirky, funny, independent film about a bunch of young guys trying to make it in Los Angeles. And of course, the director was Doug Lyman, and the film was 1996's Swingers. Oh, I, I was going to guess that this film was going to make it on your list. I, I, it can't not. I mean, there, there was a period of time where I probably could have quoted the whole movie <laughs> to you because beyond the fact that it is so hilarious. So hilarious. Uh, it's just the, the, the writing is so clever. The script, of course, by mm-hmm. John Favreau. It's about the guys that are actually starring in the movie. I mean, yeah. who were nobody? There was no John Favreau. There was no Vince Vaughn. There was no Ron Livingston. I mean, these, these were nobody. These were kids mm-hmm. running around Los Angeles trying to get some kind of foothold in Hollywood, not sure how to do it. And they decided to, to, to put down on paper their experience. I, to me, that's not the romance of swingers. It's not the, it's not the, oh, this is so funny and, you know, let's go pick up some beautiful babies and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> to me, the romance of swingers is, this is a story about men who are friends. That's what I, and that's, that's what I love about the film. I found that I not only loved it, but I was jealous of it because yeah. I looked at it and I was like, you know, I have friends that I love. Men who are friends who love each other is something that there should be more movies about, but there's so few. And yeah, I wonder why that is. But you know what, though? There used to be more. There, that, yeah, there used the to thing. be. That's the thing. Like if you look at, at, at some of the, you know, the old films from like the Billy Wilder days or right. those kinds of things, you would see men who are friends and... Mm-hmm. But it's just hard to do now. Like you, you have to, you have to play it off with some kind of cynicism. You can, men can't really be close, and they can't really be friends, and they can't love each other the way the guys in Swingers love each other. And I, I lament that, and I celebrate the fact that that a film like Swingers is in the world because it just these guys that are bumping around Los Angeles trying to figure out ways to get their comedy listened to and to get laid. Yep. It's a beautiful human story about men who love each other, and I think that's that's worth it. Look, she didn't like me, okay? I'm mean, a fool of myself. Baby, don't talk that way. But you're right? so you're so money, and you don't even know it. That's what I keep trying to tell you. So could you, you not mess know. with me right now, baby? We're not. We're messing. not. Don't you are? You're like a big bear with 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 claws and with fangs, big man. fucking teeth, yeah, man. man. Fucking teeth on you. She's just like this little bunny. Who's just kind of cowering in the corner, shivering. Yeah, man, just kind of, you, you know, you got these claws and you're staring at these claws, man. And you're thinking to yourself with these claws, you're thinking, man, how am I supposed to kill this bunny? And you're how poking am I supposed at it, man. You're poking bunny? at Yeah, you're not hurting it. You're just kind of gently batting the bunny around. You know what I mean? And the bunny's scared, Mike. The bunny's scared of you. And you got shivering. these fucking claws you got these and fucking fangs, claws and these fangs, man. And you're looking at your claws and you're looking at your fangs and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what to do, man. I don't know how to kill the bunny. With this, you don't know how to kill the bunny. Do you know what I mean? You're like a big bear, man. I think films have taken the journey motif or the just wanting to get laid motif, and they've, they've used that for comedy, but almost at the expense of the relationship that's really at the core of this film. Like, what a fascinating film to begin with for Doug Lyman. And who would have thought that that movie would have produced not one, but two blockbuster action directors, the other, of course, being John Favreau. I know. 
artists who are responsible for such quality pieces of art in their career. That's a good pick. I'm glad it's there. Well, thank you. And by the way, little just just a little piece of trivia. Uh, Swingers actually was supposed to have been directed by John Favreau as his freshman. Film. Oh, I didn't know that. That's true. They were trying to get funding together, and essentially, it sort of was decided that it would be too much for John Favreau to write, act in and also direct the film all at once, partly because of financiers and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But they just said, no, you need to have someone else direct this. And that was a very difficult thing for him to give up. Oh, I bet. But eventually, of course, they landed on Doug Lyman. And uh, and thank goodness, because uh, what a great freshman film. Yeah, that is great. So my number seven, and no need to really talk about, about this, because it's the 1984 Joe and Ethan Cohen freshman film. Blood Simple. Blood Simple. Um, I don't have much more to say about it, but I will say why it is on the list is because it just can't not be. I mean, it can't. I mean, Joel and Ethan Cohen are some of my favorite filmmakers, and I go back to this film, and I just am, I can't believe it's as good as I think it is. Yeah. I mean, after I watch it and after I've spent some time, I'm like, no, was it really that perfect? Every time I'm like, I mean, I don't know if there's many flaws in it. There aren't many flaws at all. It's it's just, and that's, that's a staple of the Coen brothers. You know, in between our recording, our first episode of the Freshman 15, and of course now, the Criterion edition of Blood Simple mm-hmm. has come out, which is great. It's a fantastic 4K transfer. It's just that the film looks as gorgeous it, as it's It does. It looks so beautiful. But the extras are also fantastic, and you and you uh, you know if you ever get a chance, um, you know you hear, for example, Frances McDormand uh, talking about her experience, the lengths that she would go in order to get herself into a certain emotional state, and, mm-hmm. and there's Joel and Ethan Cohen saying, "Well, if that's what you need to do, then do it." Whereas many directors would be like, "No, get your act together. The camera's rolling." Get, but they respect the process of the of their actors, and uh, you know, even as young guys making their first film on a shoestring, that was true. Uh, so anyway, I I don't mean to digress too much. No, about but it. that's a beautiful story about them because I think that given how their films turn out, it seems like they'd be much more rigid and yeah. authoritarian. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I I love hearing that. Yeah. So number six. So number six, I'll say up front that much like your 400 blows, uh, it's I'm sure this is going to be looked at as the pretentious pick or the obligatory pick. We each pick. need to have one. We got to have one. So as much as this might sound like an obligatory pick, I promise it's not. I love this film. It deserves to be on the list. It deserves everything. When you talk about what are the greatest freshman mm-hmm. films, what are the greatest films of all time, you'll see this one on every list. And so, yes, I fully own it. My number six pick is the 1941 film by Orson Welles. And, of course, that's Citizen Kane. I'm so glad it made your list. It had to make one of ours. <laughs> But it's a dangerous thing to pick Citizen Kane as your number six because immediately you're going, oh, so you're saying there's five films that are better than Citizen Kane. I know, I know. It's such a phenomenal, phenomenal film. If you've seen any film that's come out since Mm -hmm. the 1940s, you've never seen a film that hasn't been influenced by Citizen Kane in some way. And it's hard to believe that statement until you watch the film Mm -hmm. and you realize, wow, it was all here. Yeah. I remember thinking, like, really? This one gets, like, number one all the time? That doesn't seem... Yeah. So this and Lawrence of Arabia, really? That just... I don't get it. That can't be true. And then I remember watching it and thinking, holy shit. Yeah. It's all here. Oh, it's amazing. It really is amazing. It's an amazing... I'll tell you what I like the most about Citizen Kane. It's the fact that it's an adult story. 
And we get so few of those. We, we are oversaturated in our culture and in the time that we live by stories that are built to accommodate a lowest common denominator. Mm. If that sounds insulting, I guess maybe it is insulting, uh, but it's the truth. We look for these things in movies that it's got to appeal to everyone in order to make right. enough money. And it's got to have this element and it's got to have that element. And it's got to have, it's got to be dumbed down to the point to where even if you're a person of low education or a person of, who hasn't been very cultured, you'll still grab hold of certain things. Citizen Kane says, no, there's a lot of people that just aren't going to get this. Right. And that's, that's okay. There's stories that we're used to. There's stories like she's a busy professional. He's a freewheeling dude. How are they ever going to get along? Or they're just a bunch of goofballs in the inner city, but maybe they can learn to dance or, mm-hmm. you know, all these, and they're these simple premises and like, I'm sure we can get two hours out of this. They're built to accommodate basically everyone. Right. But here's a story about a good man, a solid, mm-hmm. decent man who wants the right things, and he's willing to fight for the right things. And that man finds success, and then he falters. Right. And he becomes the instrument of his own destruction. That's 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 an adult story it right really there. Is. And that is not an easy story. That's that's a that's a literary story. That's a story that we can't really just sum up and feel good about. You're you're smarter for having watched it. So I, anyway. I could go on and on. I can't say enough good things about uh, what Orson Welles somehow managed to pull off with his first film. What are you going to do, Charlie? Declaration of Principles. <laughs> don't smile, Jedediah. Got it all written out, Declaration of Principles. You don't want to make any promises, Mr. Kane. You don't want to keep. These will be kept. I'll provide the people of this city with a daily paper that will tell all the news honestly. I will also provide That's the second them. sentence you've started with I. People are going to know who's responsible. And they're going to get the truth in the inquirer quickly and simply and entertainingly, and no special interests are going to be allowed to interfere with that truth. I'll also provide them with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and as human beings. Can I have that, Charlie? I have a hunch. It might turn out to be something pretty important. Our last episode, episode 11, was Paul Thomas Anderson. I can't think of a Paul Thomas Anderson without an Orson Welles. The stories that Paul Thomas Anderson is concerned with telling, he has freedom to do that because of what Orson Welles did with Citizen Kane, saying, you know what? There are going to be films that are going to be open. There are going to be questions that you need to ask, that you need to consider. That's one of the things I love about that film, even thinking about the time in which it came out. It's forcing the audience to engage in a way that I'm not sure they had needed to. Yeah. Up to that point. Controversial film at the time. And not for nothing, one of the greatest performances you'll ever see oh, in any man. film ever is is Orson Welles playing Charles Foster Kane. It's just, it's a gripping performance. It it's worth seeing. I mean, I cannot wait to share my number six. Let's hear it. After you just talked about Citizen Kane. <laughs> I'm sure they're on the, at a similar level. So when I went to film school, you know, it was const- I was constantly told that the 80s was like one of the worst decades for films. All right. And I don't know why they would say that. I mean, it came after the 70s, which I think they people would consider was a high point in cinema. So I didn't see this film when it came out. But I've seen this film multiple times since, and I love it so much. Yeah. And it's the 1989 film, Say Anything, <laughs> by Cameron Crowe. All right. Hey, don't be embarrassed about Say Anything. I'm not embarrassed. I love that freaking you know, you movie. Should. You should. You should. You We've all been that kid standing there with that boom box. Right? I mean, okay. So Lloyd Dobler, who doesn't want to be Lloyd Dobler? Oh, 
I mean, I love this film, and I think one of the reasons why I love this film is because I smile the whole time I'm watching it. I think it's so funny. What Cameron Crowe does with all the different elements of the films that he's he's actually using, that he tries to employ in later films, but I don't think he does to as great of an effect. I think this might be one of his best movies. This movie wears its heart on its sleeve. It pulls me in every time. And I want to be Lloyd Dobler, Mm -hmm. yes, with the Mm boombox, in your eyes. Yep. Peter Gabriel. Yeah, I, I can want. I want to play that for you right I, now. Hey, listen, and I would. Lo- I would love for you to play it for me. I tell you, your wind up made it. I thought you were going to say like Fast Times at Ridgemont High or something. I didn't know where you were going right. with it. This is a solid film, though. In fact, I would go so far as to say Cameron Crowe, he pulled a big switcheroo with that movie, honestly, because I'm old enough to remember the marketing for that movie. Okay. Everyone thought, like, it's a John Hughesy right deal. And then you watch it, and you're like, oh, there's something a little different than the John Hughes oh, yeah. recipe going into this film. And there's, yeah, there's some heart, but there's some intelligence and art and abstraction and yeah, you know. and I think the writing is so good. I love the characters, and I love Lloyd Dobler's confidence, but he's not an asshole. He's actually a good guy. Yeah, Lloyd, what are your plans for the future? Spend as much time as possible with Diane before uh, she leaves. Seriously, Lloyd. I'm totally and completely serious. No, really. You mean my career? I don't know. I've, I've <clears throat> thought about this quite a bit, sir, and I, I would have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. So, uh, my father's in the army. He wants me to join, but I can't work for that corporation. Um, so what I've been doing lately is kickboxing. You want him to succeed, not even because he's like a like this really like small nerdy kid, right? And so, well, yeah, let's get the beautiful girl. No, he's actually just kind of an outsider. Well, that's the thing, and and you you're set up for something where it's like, okay, is he gonna be the nerd who makes good, or is he gonna be the super good looking kid who has got it all figured out? And he's neither, right? Smart, but maybe he doesn't have as much going on, and he doesn't have as much figured out. But he's trying. So good. Yeah, it's been too long, honestly, since I've seen Say Anything. Nice so pick. Yeah, good pick. You know, right after Citizen Kane, I feel like it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Citizen Kane of Cameron Crowe movies. Yeah, absolutely. To be fair, though, I because C- Cameron Crowe, I think we can agree that he hasn't maintained quality through every film. Right. That he's maybe known for in some of his early films. But it is helpful to look back at at, at like a Say Anything and say, he is an artist with something to say. He certainly was an artist with uh, terrific amounts of depth and facility. Yep. See it. Watch it again. Watch it again. Try not smiling. And you know what? You will lose. (laughs) Well, speaking of losing, if you're sitting and you're listening to our list of top 10 freshman films right now, you're probably thinking, all right, give me the final five. But nope. Sorry, the good news is we do have five more films apiece to recommend to you, but the bad news is, of course, you're going to have to wait until tomorrow for part two of our top ten freshman films list. And uh, let me tell you, uh, if you think you've heard some surprises in this first episode, uh, just wait till you hear what's in store for my and Daniel's top five. It's true. Will Clerks be up there? Maybe. Will it be Clerks? Will it be THX? Will it be Cannonball Run? Is that even a freshman film? Who knows? Doesn't matter. You'll find out the answers and more to all these questions in our part two. Thank you again for joining us for uh, part one. Uh, We'll see you tomorrow. Bye.